In 399 BC, the Greek philosopher Socrates was on trial. Socrates is about 70 years old at the time of his trial. Uh, he's lived virtually his entire life in Athens, and he is brought up on charges of disbelieving the gods of the city and corrupting the young. Today, we might say this is a treason trial. Socrates believed in free thought. He sought truth by questioning everything, including society. His philosophies were political. They were seen as a threat to the ancient Athenian government, which felt that Socrates was undermining democracy and corrupting society. But it's revealing that the person we think of as, in many ways, the first political philosopher is also the subject of what might be thought of also as one of the first treason trials. And that already sets up a revealing problem, that there is something dangerous about this activity of philosophizing and of political philosophizing in particular. What is it about Socrates' activity that suddenly have become to appear so dangerous or problematic that he is brought up on treason charges? Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Stephen Smith, a professor of political philosophy at Yale University, to discuss Plato's Apology. Plato is believed to have been born around the year 428 BC in Athens, Greece. He was a student and follower of Socrates, who was roughly 40 years his senior. Although Socrates did not consider himself a teacher, he did have many devoted followers who he shared his philosophical ideas with. Unlike Socrates, who never wrote anything down, Plato was quite prolific. He wrote approximately 30 works and pioneered a new form of writing, the dialogue. In his dialogues, he explored philosophical ideas through real and imagined conversations. Plato's Apology is one of these dialogues, it is an account of Socrates' trial, documented by Plato, who was there that day. The dialogue includes Socrates' defense speech to a jury of roughly 500 Athenians. What does it mean that it's called the apology? Apology doesn't mean exactly what we think of it as meaning today. He's not apologizing in the sense of saying, I'm sorry, or I regret what I've done. An apology is literally a defense speech. The defense of Socrates, the defense speech of Socrates would be, in some ways, a kind of uh, more up-to-date translation. So let's, let's now go into the structure of the text. Um, how does he arrange the story? How long is it? What, how is it constructed? By the standards of Platonic dialogues, a relatively short dialogue, uh, it's a dialogue that proceeds in a couple of different acts. Uh, the main the main act, you might say, is Socrates' defense speech itself. The text begins with this defense speech. Socrates was brought to trial by three men. Enetus, a rich, distinguished Athenian and a son of a politician. Meletus, who is essentially Enetus' puppet. And Lycon, a democratic politician. They charge Socrates with corrupting the youth and failing to acknowledge the gods of the state. But these three were not Socrates' first critics. To me, at least, the most interesting part of his defense speech 
is he the way he divides his accusers, the, the, the people who brought this accusation against me today, Anatus and Melitus, are really, he says, drawing on a long-standing prejudice that Athenians have had against me for a long time that was brought against me by a famous poet, he says. And that poet was Aristophanes, who had written a play about Socrates called The Clouds. One of the rumors about Socrates was that he tried to provide physical explanations for things that were usually the business of the gods. In The Clouds, Aristophanes portrays Socrates as a charlatan philosopher, a fraud. He shows Socrates floating in the air, speculating about spiritual matters. Socrates claims this is a lie and asks the jury if any of them had heard him speak about such things. But what this, what this shows is that from the very beginning, uh, from his earliest uh, investigations, Socrates was shown as some, something of a problem. And there also, in the Apology, Socrates alludes to what uh, will become or what is uh, a central theme of his work, what he calls the old quarrel between poetry and philosophy. The poets at the time represented standardized thought, along with the politicians, orators, and artisans. They were considered the wise, important people of Athens, and society looked up to them. But Socrates questioned their thinking. This made him very unpopular among many Athenians. Aristophanes, you might say the inheritor of the poetic tradition, and Socrates, the inheritor in many ways or creator of the kind of, you might call new, newer fangled tradition of philosophy. Socrates then turns and speaks to his new accusers, the ones who brought him to trial. He says their minds have been poisoned by these deep-rooted prejudices. He addresses the first charge, corrupting the youth. He tells the jury that this complaint really began years earlier, when his friend Caraphon paid a visit to the Oracle of Delphi. Caraphon asked the Oracle who was the wisest of all men. The Oracle responded, there is no man wiser than Socrates. Socrates interpreted this as a riddle, because he knew that he knew nothing. To test the riddle, he set out to find someone wiser than himself. He questioned the so-called wise men in town, the poets, artisans, orators, and politicians. He tested their wisdom and found that while they thought themselves wise, in fact, they knew very little. Socrates interpreted the oracle's message to mean that because the so-called wise men actually knew nothing, then he must be wiser because he was aware of his own ignorance. The wise men thought they were wise, but Socrates knew that he knew nothing, which made him the wisest of all. I remember once um, a teacher of mine talked about um, how annoying Socrates would have seemed to his fellow citizens. And, and really, in a different light, he's just going around mocking everybody constantly. Um, so you, know, I, I, you can find some sympathy with his fellow citizens who like probably don't quite know what to make of this guy. Right. I mean, one of the things that comes out is his mockery. Uh, another term for that uh, is his irony uh, that made him eventually seem very, to his, to his fellow citizens, very unsympathetic uh, in his attitude of challenging received opinions. 
While he was questioning the wise men of Athens, Socrates caught the attention of the younger generation. Many of them followed in his footsteps and began doing the same thing. And it became clear he seemed to be a kind of Pied Piper of Athens, particularly attracting young people who clearly enjoyed and reveled, as young people always do, of seeing their elders mocked and ridiculed by Socrates. Uh, there was something deeply attractive and, and, and intriguing uh, about that, uh, as, in, as indeed there was. And yet for many people, and I think there's more than a grain of truth to this, his mockery seemed in many ways not to lead anywhere. There was something not just skeptical, but disruptive about it. Uh, he seemed very adept at undermining, you might say today deconstructing, uh, received values and opinions, but without really replacing them with anything. And that constant undermining and deconstructing of opinion became to be seen not only as annoying and irritating, but as dangerous to the opinions on which society rests. Socrates then proceeds to defend the second charge against him, that he is an atheist. He does this through a cross-examination of Meletus, one of his three accusers. In this famous interrogation, Socrates leads Meletus to contradict himself. Meletus claims that Socrates is an atheist and follows different gods than those recognized by the Athenian state. Socrates says this is illogical. How can he be an atheist and recognize other gods at the same time? Socrates also reminds Meletus that he follows the oracle's prophecy, that he is the wisest of all men. Since the god Apollo speaks through the oracle of Delphi, Socrates also acknowledges Apollo. So it begins with uh, Socrates re referencing this old quarrel and distinguishing the first generation of critics represented by Aristophanes from the, from the current generation of critics represented by Anatus and Meletus, who have built on the, this, you might say, prejudice against Socrates, but have, have kind of turned it in a, in a somewhat different direction, uh, direction of, of disbelief of the gods and corrupting of the young. Near the end of his defense speech, Socrates tells the jury that he is doing a service to Athens. He compares himself to a gadfly who stings the lazy horse that is the Athenian state. Without his stinging, the state is inclined to drift into a deep sleep. Although it may be uncomfortable and irritating, his role is necessary for finding truth. So they didn't buy it. They, they didn't like his defense. Um, what, what happens? <laughs> he continues to dig, I think quite intentionally, uh, a much deeper hole for himself than in many ways the charges even suggested. So in this way, the speech writing is very far from being an apology in our ordinary sense of that term than really a defense of the, the life of the philosopher and what philosophy does. After Socrates' defense speech, the jury votes on his sentence. They find him guilty by a narrow margin. According to Athenian law at the time, both the prosecutor and defendant have to come up with a punishment for the charges. Typically, the defendant would want to come up with a punishment that was not as severe as the prosecutor's, but severe enough so the jury would pick theirs, the lesser of two evils. Meletus chooses the punishment of death. But Socrates believes he shouldn't get any punishment because he hasn't done anything wrong. 
He chooses what he believes to be fair compensation for his public service to Athens. They ask him to choose something. And he says, what I really want is uh, I want to be honored with dinner at the um, at, at something like the high table of Athens. I want dinner there every, every night, you know. So, you know, by this time, he's mocking the, the, ser- the seriousness of it, clearly. Socrates stands by his role as a philosopher. He never apologizes. And instead, one last time, defends philosophy while facing the real possibility of death. The final straw in the speech is his maybe the most famous sentence of the uh, speech when he tells the Athenians that the unexamined life is not worth living. And yet he can tell the Athenians that only the philosophic life, that is to say only the examined life, is worth living. What does that say to people? Because unless you're engaged, as I am, in the examination and interrogation of ideas of my own and those around us, your life is useless. It's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, with that statement, you might say he signs his death warrant in in a way because he really does, far from uh, telling the Athenians that uh, I'm doing you good, which which he does claim to be doing. He claims to be exercising kind of fruitful, useful role as a gadfly. I'm kind of awaken you. I'm a spur to your critical self-reflection. But at the end, he he ends up by telling them that only I am leading a worthy human life. Socrates finally says that if his proposed punishment must in fact be a punishment, it should be a fine. He doesn't have much money, but agrees he could pay 100 drachmas. Some of his wealthy supporters chime in and offer to raise the price to 3,000 drachmas, hoping the increased fine would sway the jury to spare Socrates' life. But it was too little, too late. The jury voted for his death. Athenian law stated that death sentences were to be carried out by drinking poison. Before he is carried off to prison, he addresses both sides of the jury one last time. He tells those who voted for his death that they have to bear the criticisms of those who voted to acquit him. He says that he could have saved himself by weeping at their feet and saying whatever was necessary for his acquittal, but that he would be disgracing himself. He says the real goal is not to outrun death, but to outrun wickedness. He acknowledges that death has outrun him, but wickedness has outrun them. Socrates then addresses those who voted for his acquittal. He tells them that the divine voice that usually warns him against harm stayed silent throughout the trial. He says perhaps death is a blessing and should not be feared. He predicts it is either a deep, restful sleep or a transition to an afterlife where he will be among the great figures of the past. Why why do you think he was so committed to being a martyr? Socrates was 70 by this time. Uh, You could even say by this time he had one foot in the grave. And he wanted to have a martyr's death, a philosopher's death. You know, in many ways, a kind of imitation of Achilles in the, in, in, in the Iliad, who was offered a short life and a glorious one, or a long life, long but humdrum life. And Socrates wanted to take on, in many ways, the martyr's role. Socrates spends his final hours in a jail cell, accompanied by several of his followers and students, including Plato. As ordered by the state, Socrates takes his own life by drinking a poison made out of a deadly plant called hemlock. 
His final hours and death are depicted in great detail in another one of Plato's works written decades later called Phaedo. His life is beautified in a certain way, and his death is beautified. We see him at the very end of his life offering elevating speeches about the immortality of the soul while waiting for the hemlock to set in. You know, he's given a true martyr's death, which has remained throughout Western history a kind of model of how to, how to die. So Socrates not only gave us a model of how to live or what he thought was the best way of life, he showed us how to die as well. But why, why do you think the, the city rulers didn't just ignore him? Why, why do you think they really felt compelled to put him on trial? And eventually, you know, they didn't back down. They did kill him. You might say, here's this old guy, 70. He's lived a, a pretty long life. I mean, why not just let, let him go on, ignore him, let him go on? He's not going to live that much longer anyway. Uh, and I'm sure many people felt that way. Uh, the trial of Socrates took place in the year 399 BCE. Uh, only a few years prior to that, in 404, so five years before, Athens had been defeated in its nearly 30 years, what you might call an almost 30 years war with its chief rival, Sparta. This 30 years war is known as the Peloponnesian War. After Athens was defeated, Sparta established an oligarchy and the city was ruled for roughly eight months by a group known as the 30 Tyrants. They ordered that anyone in Athens who opposed their regime would be killed or exiled. Socrates stayed in Athens during this rule and was therefore associated with supporting the 30 tyrants. It does seem to suggest that Socrates was associated from the standpoint of the city of Athens with some very questionable company. In 401, I believe it was, the oligarchy of the 30 was overthrown, a democracy or the democracy was restored. And it was under this restored democracy that the trial of, so that they, that the trial of Socrates took place. So once you begin to see the context of this, an Athenian defeat, the imposition of a Spartan-led oligarchy, and then the restoration of a kind of unstable democratic regime, Socrates might not look like such a totally innocent bystander to this, but someone who's really questioning the basic principles, the basic assumptions of a democrat of democratic Athens. How has how was the text read um, over the last few thousand years? Who, what are some moments um, where we can, you know, trace a direct line of influence on the institutions and culture that we have? When we're talking about the way in which uh, the trial of Socrates figures into kind of the long arc of, of Western history, uh, one of the ways in which Socrates has remained in many ways alive and heroic is in the tradition of civil disobedience. Uh, he was a hero for uh, Thoreau, uh, obviously wrote probably the most famous tract on civil disobedience in uh, certainly in American in American literature. 
Henry David Thoreau was a 19th century American philosopher, poet, and essayist. One of his most famous works is an essay called Civil Disobedience, in which he argues for disobedience against unjust governments. Similar to Socrates, he believed individuals should not tolerate an unjust government that overrules their own morals, forcing them to perpetuate injustice. He believed citizens should stand up to such governments. When I, when I started college, um, it was during the, the Vietnam War, and there was a lot of talk in the air about civil resistance, defying the draft. Uh, Socrates was again hauled out. I remember my first introduction to Socrates was uh, in a class where the con- very much the context of that class was resistance to the draft. And Socrates was enlisted into the cause of resistance to the Vietnam War. Socrates was used uh, in many ways very admirably by Martin Luther King in his resistance to Southern segregation statutes during the civil rights era. He was used by Gandhi in his resistance to British imperial rule in South Africa and India. So Socrates very much figures into the, uh, not just the philosophic canon, I think it was Spinoza or Thomas More examples, but clearly he figures into, I think very prominently, into the tradition of civil disobedience and the way in which in the American political tradition, civil disobedience is very much a part of our uh, kind of political DNA, and Socrates is there. And, and is that because he witnesses that there are higher values or higher ideals than the status quo, and that he was willing to die for those ideals? When, you know, he was invoked by the protesters against Vietnam, uh, we certainly weren't uh, invoking uh, Socrates' claim that uh, only the philosophic life is worth living. I mean, that, that's the challenge. I mean, because Socrates does bring out, as you, as you point out, a uh, resistance based on a much high, a, a, you know, an extraordinarily high principle, an extraordinarily high principle. It's not just one that's based on freedom of expression. It's not, he's not invoking anything like what we would think of as a First Amendment right or a right. But he, he's, he, invokes, he, he invokes a principle of, of the philosophic life as the only way worth living uh, as, as, a, as, a, as his ground for kind of principled resistance or principled resistance to authority. And that's a very high standard that very few, if any of us, are able or willing to live up to. Socrates was disobedient because he refused to live any other way than as a philosopher. His disobedience continues to serve as a model for resistance today, but also raises some new questions. What, what about uh, this text's influence on ideas of justice uh, or legal matters in, in Western life? Uh, it takes up the theme of justice, you might say, sort of indirectly, in that it, it posits a, at the core of the dialogue a tension between, you might say, the needs of individual moral life, the life of kind of moral integrity and the demands of the community. And 
he, in that way, it brings up kind of indirectly the question of justice. How, what does a just person do when confronted with an unjust demand? Uh, there's not really a formula, there's not quite an answer given to that, uh, but Socrates does bring up the uh, idea that that's, that there are demands that society makes on us that can, can be rightfully or justly resisted. That That's one of the, I think, an issue that you see in Thoreau and, and others who, you know, faced with faced with what they deemed an unjust law or, or any of the civil resistors, you know, through Vietnam or... Uh, one of the problems with that is Plato doesn't give us a very clear idea of when resistance is justified and, and when it's not. Of course, it's easy for us to be on the sides of MLK and Gandhi and even Thoreau uh, when they are asked to do certain things. But take take another example, I think I think probably more controversial, who someone who invokes the you might say the voice of conscience to do something when the state or the authorities are telling to do it. What about the uh, Kentucky clerk who refused to issue licenses to, to gay couples uh, on the grounds that this violated her, you know, her conscience, her, her right of conscience to, to do something? We were, we were outraged at that. Do your job, we said. That's your job. You can't, who are you to put your your own private uh, conscience, you know, before the law. But that's, that's also, you know, when is conscience the voice of principle? When is, when is it a mask for self-interest and prejudice? And that's why it's such a slippery slope in many ways that Socrates invokes. It does seem the core or a core theme um, of the apology is about change, versus the status quo. What's interesting is the youth are attracted to Socrates. And like most youth, they're interested in changing things a little from the way that their parents have, have arranged society. But Socrates, as you mentioned, in a way, it is a, a, a negation philosophy. It's we can know nothing. Um, the pursuit itself is all there is. And if you're you know, the mayor of the city... What kind of program is that? Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, you still have to pick up the trash. You have to uh, be responsible for, for all kinds of things. This is why, uh, in many ways, uh, the apology taken by itself, although we can, we can certainly do that, uh, is really incomplete until we put it with the dialogue which, with which it was intended to be paired, and that's the crito. The Crito is another platonic dialogue centered around a conversation between a man named Crito, a follower of Socrates, and Socrates himself. It takes place in Socrates' jail cell following the trial. Crito tells Socrates that he's going to help him escape. And Socrates refuses to do it. Uh, he refuses to do it, and he gives Crito a number of reasons, very powerful reasons, for why uh, why he's not going to escape. Haven't the laws uh, raised us, he said. The laws of the city, they've raised us. They've made us who we are. Don't we owe them, then, an obligation not to break them? 
Um, isn't it a question of piety, in, in fact? The laws are like our parents. They have kind of created our character. They've made us who we are. We owe them a kind of filial piety not to break the laws. Don't make me do this, he says. And uh, he's willing to stay and drink the hemlock. But there's also a sense in he doesn't want to set a bad example for people who aren't going to be philosophers. Uh, this friend of his, Crito, is no philosopher by a long stretch. He doesn't really get, he's, he seems to be attracted to Socrates, but he doesn't get it. And uh, Socrates doesn't want to help him become a lawbreaker. So he gives him a story and a very, uh, in many ways, a very powerful story about why the laws should never be broken, why we should never dissent from the laws. Doing so is like disobeying our parents and our other ancestors. Although the majority of Athenians saw Socrates as a threat to society, Socrates believed he was doing the public a service. He believed in the laws of society and was carrying out his mission, given to him by the oracle, to awaken the public from their deep sleep. He cared about the future of Athens. The question, in a way, that runs throughout the apology is how will citizens of the next generation be educated? Who has the right to educate? Is it the poets who might say claim to speak for the older tradition, the gods, the heroes of Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey and Hesiod and the like? Or is it philosophy? Is it the philosophers who will argue on the basis of some kind of rationality? on some grounds of sufficient reason, who will not be swayed by song, by, by stories, by fables, by the gods, but claim to uh, re-educate society on the basis of a kind of reason alone. These, these issues are, are still with us. They've not been totally resolved by any means. If Socrates is the first to really ask how to live a good life. Is it fair to characterize previous ways of thinking about that question as sort of nonsensical that, well, we live the way we live. There's just customs that we follow. We don't think about them because they were, they were given to us. Um, is the big distinction he just is willing to question the way society and human life is ordered? I think it's a very good way of putting it. Uh, Socrates asks the question, is, is there a best way of life? And I think that's, that's right. Uh, he's willing to break with custom, and I think it's largely what uh, drove the charges against him, his challenges of the customary, which, which includes the gods, to be sure, our beliefs, beliefs about the gods. He's willing to challenge that and ask is, is, there, is, there a, is there a single best way of life for all human beings, everywhere and always? And that's a revolution. That's a revolutionary idea. Socrates constantly questioned the conventional ideas of his day. He challenged the leaders of Athens who he thought blindly perpetuated old traditions and old thought. His influence resonates throughout history, and his impact has inspired not only Western philosophy, but also social rights movements. As societies evolve, this clash of old thought and new thought continues. But it is precisely at this clashing point that the seeds of change are sown.
Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Ferrandu, and our intern is Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. Our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on Twitter at writlargepod and on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts and links to the books we discussed. Thanks for listening. See you next time.